Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gittler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 16 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, May the 20th. First, I'll be talking to Dr Angus Tran, a medical doctor and world-ranked AI engineer and data scientist, who is a co-founder and CEO of Harrison AI, a clinician-led healthcare artificial intelligence company tackling some of the biggest issues in healthcare, causing inequitable diagnosis and treatment today. They've rapidly developed breakthrough AI software in in vitro fertilisation, IVF, chest x-rays, brain CTs, and soon skin conditions, all with the aim of helping clinicians make the right diagnoses faster and treat patients sooner. And I'll be talking to KPMG economist Sarah Hunter about the interest rate rises and inflation. But now let's talk to Dr. Angus Tran. Angus... Tell us about Harrison AI. I mean, you're a, a medical services company specializing in AI. How does that work? Yeah, so Harrison, we build AI technologies for doctors. And the way that we do that is by uh, building great companies, each company focusing on one health vertical. And from these companies, we build medical device that doctors can use in their day-to-day practice to enhance access to care, improve diagnostic accuracy, and ultimately better patient outcome. We're currently in two fields. One is in radiology with a portfolio company we call Annalise AI, and another one that we recently spin up called Franklin AI. So these all belong to the Harrison family, and uh, you can see them as different health department within a hospital, right? each addressing health in a very different way. So how did you go about developing this company? So a little bit about myself, if you zoom back out a bit, I grew up in Vietnam. And I came to Australia when I was 16, you know, obviously here for a great education. And uh, I was lucky enough to got trained as a medical doctor uh, in University of New South Wales in, in Sydney. And during my medical training, uh, I learned a lot about medicine. I fall in love with the profession and, and how you can really change and help people. But it also not very scalable. 
it took me six years to be trained as a doctor and probably another lifetime of practice, right? To be skilled my craft, looking after patients. And in a year, if I'm lucky, I'll maybe look after and really change the life of maybe 300 patients or so. And growing up in a family of mathematicians and um, programmers, I've always been the one who, who liked to build a tool that obsolete the problem rather than doing the problem, solving the problem in a repetitive manner. And medicine, you know, and the more I learn about it, the more I realize it's just not that, right? Uh, it's not like in the movie, where you, you see doctors doing heroic diagnosis and uh, heroic things. It's not about doing incredible things in medicine. It's about doing the simple thing repeatedly, incredibly well. And that's really drive me to think about how technology can play a role in the profession I love so much. And this is around the time where AI is really tech whole and, and able to achieve really amazing stuff. I mean, I went and learned about AI machine learning and I realized, you know, this is what the, the health system really needed. We need to address one of the biggest problems of our time, which is uh, health inequality and the aging population across the world with one of the most scalable tools that we have, which is software and AI technology. And that's, that's come the birth of Harrison AI, you know, convinced my brother, Dimitri, to to join as the co-founders. We started the business about more than two years ago and we embark on this journey, build great medical device through AI technology that help doctors. So that's how we came about. How do you develop and commercialize these tools? So our ventures at Harrison through companies like Annalise AI and Franklin AI are the vehicle in which we commercialize this AI technology. So Harrison, we partner with world-class medical service company like Sonic Health and IMET Radiology Network to form this vehicle we call the Ventures. Uh, and, and these ventures benefit from two things. Number one is Harrison uh, background IPs and expertise in uh, building AI technology and the data set as well as clinical expertise from our cl clinical partners. Together, we can very rapidly develop world-class AI products that we, I can share more about. Uh, in a very short period of time. And these, these ventures is what take those products into the market and commercialize it. Well, give an example of how your tools can be used. Certainly. So if we look at radiology in the company of Annalise, which is a portfolio company of Harrison, we build the first product that we develop is called a chest X-ray technology. Uh, so this tool look at the chest X-ray that you and anyone else in the community would have uh, at some point in your life and essentially detect up to 124 different features in that chest X-ray uh, and allow the, the radiologist to more efficiently and more accurately detect those findings. So what that means is, you know, if you go and have a health check and you have a chest x-ray, the patient typically currently wait anywhere between a week to a month before they receive the diagnostic result of that. And oftentimes, these are very stretched clinicians who will work very long hours. And whenever that's the case, there's opportunities for misdiagnosis. And then the way that Annalise chest x-ray help with this is that the tool read all this chest x-ray up front. And if there is a critical diagnosis, these cases are flagged to the clinicians so they can get to those cases with critical findings sooner. Uh, and while they're reading it, it can prevent the chance of misdiagnosis. It's very much like a spell checker for the clinicians. So instead of doing this all themselves and through, through their tired brain after working long hours, this is another pair of eye for them, pre, uh, allowing them to do so more accurately. Does it pick stuff up that normally you wouldn't? The tool is designed to help a clinician, right? So whenever there's a human in the loop and human interpretation, there's always an opportunities for misfindings. And in fact, we recently published uh, in Lancet Digital Health, uh, a study showing that the clinicians who use the AI tool uh, significantly outperform the clinicians by themselves. And really, this is a perfect union between the machine and the doctors to, to deliver the best outcome for the patient. For example, an increase in detection rate of lung cancer could be very material for patients because that means earlier diagnosis 
and better chance of accessing life-saving treatment. Now, your company's been going for two years and you've been growing very quickly. How do you stay focused while we're growing so quickly? You know, it's all coming back to, to, to our mission and that's how we, we align not just Harrison, but our ventures. Uh, is Our goal is to improve the quality of care for a million patients every day. Today, we had about 3,000 patients uh, live touch um, every single day through our technology. And, and this is a singular goal that we are working toward. It doesn't matter if, if we're in engineering, in, in the clinical team or the research team, that this is what we, we're going toward. And through the growth of our company, it's always been in order to, to, to achieve that. So recently, the, the, the event of our new ventures in pathology called Franklin AI is still trying to achieve the same goal, but in, in a very different field than radiology is in pathology diagnosis. Do you work with hospitals and other clinics? Is that, is that the way it works? Yeah, so certainly uh, the, the, the clinics and the hospital are the direct customers for our technology. So the chest x-ray product is currently being used by over 400 radiologists across Australia. Now, Australia is a small place. There's only a few thousand radiologists around. So it's a significant amount of clinician in Australia today is using the technology to help diagnosis a patient and, and incredible that we built this in Australia. The other part of the hospital system that really benefit from this is uh, the point of care, you know, your ED uh, department or even your GP practice, uh, who at some point will need to look at these scan, um, this either chest x-ray or CT brain and need to make a correct diagnosis. And that's where we comes in. We prioritize their work so that they look at the most important patient first. And then when they do so, they do it more accurately and suddenly increasing quality of care for that patient. Now, these clients are right across Australia? So Annalise, one of the ventures for Harrison, now have customers all across Australia, both public and, and private system. Uh, like I said, uh, at the moment, uh, we are anywhere between one in four to one in three radiologists in the country using this technology. Um, we also have new deployment in the UK now, in uh, the NHS, across some of the trusts over there. Uh, and we also recently have an FDA approval uh, on parts of our chest x-ray product, which allow us to enter the U.S. market. So it's truly a global activities at the moment. So, you, so you've just entered the U.K. market, is that right? This year, we make a big push in, in the U.K. and we're starting to get some tractions there. We've got a team in, in, in U.K. all across the country and, and set, getting some real clinical deployment uh, in the country. How have you managed the growth? I mean, what have you done to growth? I mean, you've raised something like 158 million investors from some of the world's largest radiology and diagnosis clinics, Right. And you have 250 staff globally, is that right? Yes, across the Harrison group, there's over 250 employees now. Um, they spread across Harrison uh, and, and is joint ventures with the partners. So the way that we grow is by growing the team at Harrison and Annalise, but also by building new ventures. Once again, the, the important thing to know is Harrison is a company that builds companies. And each of these companies go on and change medicine in its own unique way. So with the capital raise of $158 million that we announced in December, that money will be used to grow the AI engineering capabilities at Harrison, building more product in radiology in our analyst business, but also to invest in the new ventures called Franklin AI, uh, which will build similar product but in the field of pathology. And that's how we kind of grow the business and, and improve our influence um, across many different health areas. Now, uh, you're, at the moment, you're in radiology and pathology. You, you're looking at other areas? Absolutely. I, I see an end-to-end -end vision where a patient get their chest x-ray done and that analyzed by analyst. They may get a biopsy done and that get analyzed by Franklin AI. And certainly by the time that they get treatment through things like radiation, oncology, or medical oncology, 
uh, we have an AI tool that support that process as well. Um, the goal is to build great AI system in health verticals, deliver value along the way to patient and health system, but ultimately having an end-to-end -end vision in mind of, uh, of the future of health powered by AI. Right, okay. That could actually revolutionize healthcare right around the world, potentially. It's, 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 it's the future of healthcare, uh, absolutely. And, and I think the, the, the bigger context to see here is that globally, we see a significant shortage of clinicians everywhere. Right, yeah. And that is why tools like this can scale the ability for clinicians to do their life best work in a much greater scale. Well, Angus, it's been fascinating talking to you and wishing you all the best. Thank you. Thanks, Leon. And now let's talk to KPMG economist Sarah Hunter. Well, Sarah, the RBA has raised interest rates uh, 25 basis points uh, to 0.35%, and the markets have reacted. In fact, the markets are reacting all over the world to rising interest rates and inflation and the war in Ukraine. What's your view about this? Yes, I mean, the, the RBA certainly, I think, surprised pretty much everyone with a 25 basis point hike. You could find people who had them holding 10, uh, the sort of 10 basis points or a 40 basis point. So I'm not sure anyone had 25. But I, I guess the broader picture here, though, it was very well signaled that rates were going to begin rising very soon. And, and they obviously went with May. Uh, and, and indeed, around the world, you know, we've had a 50 basis point move from the Fed just recently. More moves from the Bank of England. The ECB looks like they're teeing up for July. So certainly rates are on their way up. And, and it's no surprise, really, given the inflation environment that we're facing. There's supply side shocks coming through, as you mentioned, the war in Ukraine, and that's certainly one of them that's coming into commodity markets, food, as well as fuels and raw materials. But we've also got what's happening in China right now, which is a really interesting dynamic. It's that very tight lockdown and that continued commitment to zero COVID. It is, in some regards, a deflationary impulse because it's really damaging demand in that economy. But actually, the way we're feeling it in many countries around the world is an inflation impulse because of the importance of China as a supplier of manufactured products to the global market. Uh, and they're not able to do that um, in the same way that they were before. So we're seeing it as tight supply, and that then has inflationary impacts as well. So it's a really interesting time. It's a challenging time for central banks. But generally speaking, we've got these negative supply shocks coming through, which the banks are having to respond to because they're generating inflationary pressures over and above what we're seeing in domestic economies. What's interesting, though, is uh, how high interest rates will go. I mean, Shane Oliver was saying 2.5% next year. The uh, NAB is saying 2.6% in 2024. Where do you see it, Jackie? Yeah, it's, uh, that is the question, actually. The, when the rate rises was uh, certainly preoccupying our minds, but actually it's that profile and, and to what level that's uh, going to be much more critical for the economy and how it plays through. Um, I think that we are certainly, if I'm looking through the rest of 2022, uh, I think we're going to see quite a few rate rises coming out of the RBA in the context of them not really raising rates you know, at all, um, even since 2011. Uh, so I think we'll end the year maybe at 1.25% thereabouts. We could have one more than that. It might be one less than that. Um, after that, though, uh, I think that it becomes a bit more unclear. It really will depend on how many of these, uh, the current headwinds that we can see play through, and also how some of the emerging headwinds, how much of a drag they are um, on the economy. So obviously, rising interest rates, uh, that has an impact in terms of mortgage costs for, um, for households. And so there's some uh, dampening impact on uh, consumer spending there. But there are also questions, marks about how businesses are going to respond in terms of business investment, uh, what the trade environment looks like, not only 
exporting products overseas. And, and again, that sort of China situation comes into that. But also, uh, you know, the border is now reopened. But how quickly do students come back through? How quickly do the tourists come back? That's an unknown um, that is, at the moment, at least a bit of a headwind. And also, uh, the government uh, spending piece as well, how that plays through, how the pipeline of work gets done. And for construction, more broadly, how the residential construction market responds and the housing market. So there's some emerging headwinds that I think are really going to dictate how much more we get as we go through 2023 from the RBA. Um, you know, a, a neutral rate that's around about two and a half percent. I think that that's uh, for the appropriate place to think. That's, that's certainly where um, our estimates suggest. But do we get there quickly in 2023 or does it take a bit longer? That remains to be seen. Do we ha even have to go over the top? Because actually the, the economy is very resilient to everything that's going on and they have to dampen down even more. You can't discount that possibility either. So there's a lot of uncertainty about 23. Um, you know, higher than where we are now, sure, of course, but and some further rate rises in 23. I am expecting maybe we're getting to 1.75, 2% by the middle of the year. But after that, I think we'll just have to wait and see. It's very hard to know for sure at this stage. Well, the RBA is flagging that inflation will eventually be brought down to their 2 to 3% target ban. The question is when? And the other issue, too, which really struck me with the RBA statement, is there are so many uncertainties. I mean, for a start, there's the uncertainties about the war in Ukraine, but also we're not, we don't have any data on how wages will respond in a tight labour market. Yeah, it, no, it, exactly. And that's the thing. And that, that's sort of uh, where my previous comments were going around. How does the economy respond and, and how does it play through? There's a, a response in terms of demand. But you're right, there is also a response in terms of the labour market as well. And the two are obviously connected. If we get a sharper slowdown in growth and demand, uh, then we could start to see, you know, a real sharp uh, slowing in employment growth, for instance, and maybe some upper pressure on the unemployment rate. It's not impossible. Uh, but and then on top of that, then there is the international situation. They flagged the conflict in Ukraine, but I think in, in some regards, actually, the evolution of, of China and the situation there needs to be also really strongly considered and, and put into the mix here because it's really not clear how zero COVID is going to play out um, in terms of a policy stance and what that means for production and the ability of China to act as that sort of manufacturer for the world as it has been um, in the recent past. So there is a lot of uncertainty and that's the, that's the, the key issue. And I think that that's um, a key point to get across that forecast. We can make a forecast at this stage and, and we all will do as economists, but I think we're all going to be flagging that there's a really wide bound of possible outcomes over the next couple of years and quite Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
where we are in a year, two years' time, it's very hard to know right now. For the RBA, as much as anyone else, they have a central forecast, but they're very, you know, they're always very conscious of flagging the alternatives around that. And I think if you asked uh, Governor Lowe right now, he would say that the risk profile is, um, or the probability of them not hitting that central forecast are higher than average, to say the least. Yeah, but the issue too, the fundamental issue too, is we not only have domestic factors at play, like, for example, mm. wages, but we have so many international factors like China and like Russia and Ukraine. And we just don't know how that's going to pan out. Oh, exactly. And uh, and I think what's really interesting around those international factors, for me, sort of two, two key points here. I think one is clearly you know, Australia as a, as a country, frankly, uh, most countries in the world don't really have an awful lot of control of, of that situation. We, we have... Yeah, we can't uh, obviously can't dictate at all what happens in terms of China and domestic policy. We we have to observe that, and and that's uh, entirely for the Chinese authorities to play through as it should be. Uh, but similarly with the conflict in Ukraine, um, you know, we're we're largely having to watch and and obviously with horror at what's happening in terms of the humanitarian piece and and how that's playing out. But in terms of the economic fallout as well, we we see it in the markets and and it flows through to us directly, and we and very little that we can do about that. Uh, so that, that's one thing that it's a bucket of uncertainty that we, we can't really influence. The second thing I'd say as well that's really important just from an economic perspective and looking through that narrow lens, the key question for central banks or policymakers globally, are these shocks that we're facing right now uh, that are coming in from overseas, are they temporary? Uh, are they permanent? They're somewhere in between. So, uh, and this really, really matters. If they're temporary shocks, if we think they're going to resolve themselves relatively quickly, then you probably wouldn't, we wouldn't want the RBA really responding too much to them. So if it's going to be the case that oil supplies normalize uh, through the rest of this year, for example, or um, that China comes out of lockdown fairly quickly and, and is able to sort of get its economy back up and running and um, you know, recover from that lockdown, then perhaps we shouldn't be too worried about them. The inflationary pressures will ease as we go through next year. But if we think that they're more permanent shocks, so that we think that for an extended period of time, Russia's supply of oil to the global market is going to be compromised, that Ukraine isn't going to be able to just snap back to supplying food, the uh, manufacturing output into Europe, the commodities that Ukraine has a particularly strong base in, and that and, and conversely, for the China situation, that the lockdown is going to be extended, that even coming out of it, it's going to take a long time for recovery and perhaps there is some permanent loss to output there in China. Then we do need to respond to these shocks because they are permanent shocks to global supply. And that just means that we do need relative to demand. We do need tighter policy. So we've got, a, if you like, a bigger gap between demand and supply in the global economy. These are very, very hard questions for policymakers to answer. It's very, as you say, it's very uncertain and we don't know. But this is the, the kind of uh, balancing act that um, the RBA board and other boards um, around the world will be looking at and thinking about. Um, and certainly from my own perspective, I would say it's, I expect some of the, uh, these shocks to become permanent. I think there is going to be a long period of time where Ukraine's supply to the global economy is impaired, that Russia's ability to supply the global economy is limited, and that there will be some permanent negative fallout from what's happening in China right now. It's a very challenging, difficult period, and, and there will be some firms that choose to move away that, uh, that have to close down and what have you. So it's, um, it's, it's difficult, but it does look as though we are going to be living with some permanent long-run impacts, and that means, unfortunately for right now, tighter policy is necessary to help that rebalancing of demand and supply. Well, the fundamental issue, too, is for goodness sake, we're dealing with Russia and China. And, you know, they're not the most transparent countries. 
So we just don't know. We just don't know how they're going to respond to all of this. Indeed, it's very uncertain. And it's uh, it's interesting coming out of a pandemic. I think we all thought that the uncertainty perhaps was going to be heightened through the pandemic, certainly in those early days and weeks uh, in 2020. We were all hoping that uh, once we came out the other side and it hopefully we don't have another variant. And, and that is the case that we were you know, coming out of the other side now. Certainly at the start of this year, it was looking a lot more optimistic, but clearly a challenging environment that is very uncertain and it's not going to change it doesn't seem in the near term so I think the uncertainty and volatility will be buzzwords at least for the next few months if not um, for, through the next few years. So obviously we haven't seen nothing yet. But, uh, well so. we'll see we, maybe we have but we don't know and that's the challenge. <laughs> okay well Sarah thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Will Goldman Sachs senior chairman Lord Blankfein urge companies and consumers to gird for a US recession, saying it's a very, very high risk? If I were running a big company, I would be very prepared for it, Mr Blankfein said on CBS's Face the Nation on Sunday. If I was a consumer, I'd be prepared for it. A recession is not baking the cake, and there's a narrow path to avoid it, he said. The Federal Reserve has very powerful tools to tamp down inflation, and has been responding well, the former Goldman chief executive said. With high fuel prices and a shortage of baby formula tangible measures of America's unease, U.S. consumer sentiment declined in early May to the lowest level since 2011. U.S. consumer prices rose 8.3% in April from a year ago, slowing slightly from March, but still among the fastest rate in decades. Mr. Blankfein's comments were broadcast the same day as the firm's economists cut their U.S. growth forecast for this year, and next to reflect the recent shakeout in financial markets. Goldman's team, led by Jan Hatzius, now expects U.S. gross domestic product to expand 2.4% this year, down from 2.6%. It reduced its 2023 estimates to 1.6% from 2.2%. The report called this a necessary gross slowdown to help temper wage growth and reduce inflation back down towards the Fed's 2% target. While the slowdown will push up unemployment, Goldman was optimistic a sharp rise in joblessness can be avoided. Mr Blankfeit noted that while some of the inflation will go away as supply chains unsnarl and COVID lockdowns in China ease, some of these things are a little bit stickier, like energy prices. And the first time in decades, economists are questioning whether the Chinese government can meet its annual growth forecast, with some warning that the economy will never regain its pre-pandemic strengths. In the long term, this could sap demand for key Australian exports such as iron ore. This comes with China cutting the interest rates on new home loans in a surprise bid to stem a collapse in mortgage lending, as weak retail and factory activity in April compounded fears that Beijing's stimulus measures are failing to offset the economic damage caused by COVID-19. The rate cut by 0.2 percentage points to 4.4% followed a surprise drop in lending in April and came just ahead of further data showing the extent of the slowdown of the world's second largest economy. China's retail sales plunged 11.1% in April, twice as much as expected as lockdowns in Shanghai, and more than 40 other cities hit consumer spending, data released on Monday showed. It was the sharpest decline since the start of the pandemic in March 2020, when the entire country was shut down for several months. Industrial production also dropped 2.9% last month, in sharp contrast to economists' expectations of a modest increase as manufacturers struggled to resume normal operations, even as cities emerged from lockdowns. China's huge property market is the latest focus of concern after data released on Friday showed a collapse in new loans in April to their lowest level in four years. The focus is now on whether government stimulus will be enough to stave off the damage from the latest lockdowns, some of which are likely to continue well into next year. And the coalition says spending cuts across the public sector will deliver $3.3 billion in savings to pay for its election commitments as the government turns the pressure on Labor to, to submit its plans to Treasury for costing. The NDIS 
ABC, SBS, Safe Work Australia, Australia's Signals Directorate, Office of National Intelligence, Emergency Management Australia and National Recovery and Resilience Agency will be exempt. The Community and Public Sector Union estimates that this will cut 5,500 jobs from the APS over the forward estimates from 2022-23. The Treasurer Josh Frydenberg and Finance Minister Simon Birmingham released the coalition costings in Melbourne on Tuesday, revealing that the proposed increase to the public sector efficiency dividend and changes to super contribution would offset the $2.3 billion in new spending promises made by the coalition since the beginning of the election campaign. This would deliver a $1 billion improvement to the budget bottom line over the four-year forward estimates period, with $386 million of this coming in 2024-25, when the deficit is forecast to be $442.5 billion. Cumulative deficits over the next four years will total $223 billion. $2.7 billion will come from the efficiency dividend, while initial $653 million in savings will come from changes to contributions made by public sector agencies to the Commonwealth Superannuation Corporation and the corresponding cost for entitlements accrued by employees under the defined benefits scheme. And first homeowners could raid their superannuation up to 40%, a maximum of $50,000 to buy a house, Prime Minister Scott Morrison has pledged. They'd have to put it back when the house sold, along with some capital gains. It was a big announcement of his election campaign launch, branded a last-ditch effort to lure young voters. But the compound interest that would be lost on $50,000 is staggering and is sure to hurt the women the most, who retire with 40% less super than men, due to pay inequalities and career breaks for child-rearing. Morrison also announced that over 55s would be able to sell their homes and invest an extra $300,000 in their super, claiming it would encourage downsizing. The policy is the latest coalition announcement to benefit the wealthy retirees it is targeting for the election. And Labor committed to match the proposal for over 55s, but opposed the super scheme, arguing that those most struggling to buy a home have the least super to use. Housing spokesperson Jason Clare says first home buyers usually have a smaller super balance, and besides, it would send house prices skyrocketing, although for some of the landed gentry, that would be considered a good thing. And industry super has slammed Morrison's super housing scheme, saying the additional money Australians could take out of super via the scheme would almost be immediately gobbled up through house price surges, as analysis shows it could hike the nation's five major capital city median property prices by between 8 to 16%. Industry Super says the proposal is not what Super was set up to do and would torpedo Superfund investment returns for all Australians, forcing funds to carry more cash and be less able to invest for the long term, which has been the key to delivering members' bigger nest eggs. And millions of Australians will be able to access 10 days of paid domestic violence leave under a landmark decision by the Fair Work Commission. The Fair Work Commission has made a provisional decision that 2.6 million permanent employees should be able to access the leave on a yearly basis at their base rate of pay. The full bench of industrial umpire found that financial support was necessary to help employees leave a violent relationship and was unlikely to create a substantial cost for employers. In reaching its decision, the Commission received information that one in four women and one in 13 men experienced at least one incident of domestic violence. The Australian Council of Trade Unions, which led the case, said the ruling was a generational achievement for millions of women and called for the next federal government to expand the paid leave to all workers. And consumer confidence dropped 1.3% last week to its lowest level since mid-August 2020, according to an ANZ Roy Morgan survey. It has now fallen for three consecutive weeks. Weekly inflation expectations increased by 0.2 percentage points to 5.3%, while its four-week moving average remained steady at 5.2%. This suggests cost-of-living concerns are front and centre for consumers. And whoever wins Saturday's federal election will face months of rising interest rates and growing household cost-of-living pressures, with the Reserve Bank of Australia making clear more rate rises are on the way. According to the May board meeting minutes released on Tuesday, the bank considered a larger rise of 40 basis points and indicated a lift of 0.75 could be on the cards at its June meeting. 
They also agreed further increases in interest rates would likely be acquired to ensure that inflation in Australia returns to the target over time, but it would be necessary to monitor how rising rates affected highly indebted households to determine the timing of future rate increases. Rising interest rates and declining real wages could hold back consumer spending and lead to bigger falls in property values than anticipated, the Reserve Bank has warned. Some Australian households had incurred more debt than previously, and many had never experienced rising interest rates, the central bank said in minutes from its May 3rd board meeting published on Tuesday. Housing prices in Australia could also be more sensitive to rising interest rates than assumed, which would likely to result in lower household wealth and consumption. The RBA has previously modelled a scenario showing highly indebted borrowers face a shock to their household budgets if interest rates rise by an expected two percentage points over the next two years, which could cause a 15% drop in home values. And Australian workers saw their base wages rise an average of 0.7% over the quarter and 2.4% over the past year, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. The annual pay rise trails a 5.1% jump in the cost of living, as measured by the Consumer Price Index over the same period. An Atlassian billionaire, Mike Cannon-Brooks, has urged AGL shareholders to vote against the demerge of the company's fossil fuel business, promising to help the energy player create a more ambitious plan for the company if his campaign is successful. In a letter to AGL shareholders sent ahead of the June 15 meeting to consider the spin-out of the company's coal-fired power assets, Mr Cannonbrook stepped up his attack on AGL's plan to split, telling his shareholders that their investments in Axel Energy be worth nothing if a company is wrong about the place of its coal-fired power stations in the national electricity market. The letter sent in the wake of the May 6 release of the scheme, documents covering the demerger, argues shareholders will receive lower dividends than if a company stays together, and it means shareholders could miss out on taking advantage of the business opportunities that flow from Australia's energy transition. The power giant plans to split off AGL Australia with its 4.5 million customer base into a newly listed retail-focused company with the current AGL to be rebadged, Axel Energy. The demerger needs approval from 75% of shares voted in order to proceed, and about half of the company's registers held by retail investors generally seen as less likely to vote. And the election on Saturday could prove pivotal. The opposition Labor is offering tax exemptions on many EVs. A surge in demand saw electric vehicle sales in Australia triple last year to about 20,665 and hasn't relented in 2022, according to Bayard Jafari, Chief Executive of the Sydney-based Electric Vehicle Council. Politicians now know better than to dismiss EVs out of hand, and a change of government might push adoption closer to global standards. Morrison's federal government has set its $250 million future fuels fund should deliver EV charging infrastructure to 50,000 households and fund 1,000 public charging stations. But there's no sign of financial support for EV purchases. Labor is also pledging cash for charging stations on Australian highways and is going a step further. The party plans to exempt many electric cars from a 5% import tariff, as well as a 47% tax on EVs that are provided by employers to staff for private use. While Morrison wants to ride at EVs for political gain, Labor leader Anthony Albanese is promising them to try and win votes. Last month, he visited Tritium, a Brisbane-based maker of fast chargers for EVs. He called the Nasdaq-listed company, which has a market value of about $1.4 billion, a great Australian success story. Still, plug-in vehicles make only 2% of all, all new car sales in Australia, industry data shows. That's way behind a global average of 13% the final three months of 2021, and a tiny fraction of the market share in leading adopters like China, Norway and Sweden. Australia also lacks fuel efficiency standards that could evict the most polluting vehicles from the market and make more room for EVs. That's led car makers to prioritise other nations for new models, meaning those who do switch to electrics face limited choice and need patience. Wait times for some deliveries are up to months. Even if there isn't a change in the national government this weekend, political winds are shifting. Last week, Western Australia announced $3,500 rebates on EV purchases. 
That means every Australian state and territory, including the most populous, New South Wales, now has announced some form of EV subsidy, incentive or tax exemption. And Origin Energy has developed a new artificial intelligence tool, which it says will cut out the need for human experts to visit homes and give quotes by estimating how much power a rooftop system would generate when customers would break even on their investment. Origin says its new solar assessment tool uses machine learning to calculate the most suitable solar product for a specific home, for a specific home based on satellite images of its roof and the household's energy consumption patterns. With retail electricity prices expected to rise from July the 1st, the solar assessment tool lets consumers go online and quickly work out if solar makes economic sense for them, said Duncan Permazel, Origin's general manager of retail sales and marketing. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to ThoughtWorks, Director of Data and AI Practice, Dave Coles, on why businesses should adopt the creative use of artificial intelligence. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest wages and unemployment figures. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.